Hi, this is Mike Metcalf. This time talking about evidence which I'll spread from the scientific to the postmodern. So the system I'm thinking about is one where you say I need evidence in support of this claim. So if I'm in doing a negotiation or I'm interviewing somebody or making a decision or problem solving and I say I need good quality evidence in order to make that decision. Now we need to say what counts as evidence and what doesn't count as evidence. And first of all saying that you want an evidence-based decision is a recognition of, if you like, a Western tradition, a scientific tradition, an Enlightenment tradition. Those who say, I don't want to use an evidence-based approach, I want to use feelings or emotions or that sort of thing, then you're really already in opposition to the idea of an evidence-based approach. So, just generally speaking then, what I mean by evidence is you bring along some details. In the scientific way, it would be numbers and measurements. And you present them to people to support a claim. So, you say something like, I believe we should employ this person because... He's done these things, or she's done these things. And here's the evidence. And in order for that to sway others, to convince others, that evidence needs to be convincing. If you said something like, you know, because my grandmother likes him, people might say, well, there's not a good you know, reason to make him a manager. If you say... We have clear evidence that he was directly responsible for the growth of this company or the turnaround of the financial turnaround of this company, then you'd say that's better evidence. So I think you've got to think of all evidence as whether it's convincing or not or not to the audience. So if it was scientific evidence, typically we're talking about counting things, statistics loosely. But counting and measuring things, numbers, that leads us into mathematical. Physics likes to seek underlying mathematics behind the physical world. They would treat that as evidence. Of course, to a lot of scientists, the empirical is important. Have I run an experiment and seen something happen? And I ran counter-experiments and, and show that it didn't happen in certain cases so that you end up with a, an if-then statement if you do this then that happens and if you do this it doesn't happen this starts to open things up a little bit because if you run an experiment in a typical sort of chemistry lab experiment of mixing chemicals then you observe certain things happen and certain things don't happen which means through the human senses this is a very strong scientific method and, and the basis of science. Having done a lot of observations, one can induct a theory or a generalization of the world. Deductive research would say, I have this theory, I'm going to go off and test it. I think the work of Carl 
Popper is very useful here, who said really, yeah, he was trying to sort of get away from whether induction or deduction was better. He said that really you make a claim and you have to provide evidence to justify it, including attempts to falsify it and provide disconfirming evidence as well as confirming evidence. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to whether that evidence is convincing to the audience. Now, notice there is an audience. You might convince yourself of something. You might collect evidence and say, well, that convinced me. But in order to be scientific evidence, a, a large audience of knowledgeable, sceptical people have to be convinced. And often you'll find that that's about repeatability. If the sceptical, the knowledgeable and sceptical that you're trying to convince can go away and repeat your experiment or collect the same data, again, go through the same process that you did and come up with the same evidence, then it's usually very convincing. Repeatability by your enemies is very convincing evidence. But note, it's fundamentally an argumentative process, a negotiation process. Do you agree with me that this is true, or can we, can we take this as true and then move on to something else? So if I'm using the example of an interview, can we agree that he has these qualifications, he's a certain age, and that he has, gets a good score on this skill level? People might agree with you and say, now let's move on to his personal characteristics. So it's a process of negotiation. So let me take an example of something that might be you know, considered to be a fact and therefore non-negotiable. If you take my age, let's say I said I was 65, it's a fact. You can't negotiate about that. But surely if someone turns up and says, look, we found an error in your birth certificate, it was registered late or some such, then you can open negotiations on a fact. And I think it would be at the core of science that you can never stop somebody from, from negotiating, of coming along with new evidence and saying, you're mistaken. If you go back to sort of classic science, astronomy, for example, there was a originally a theory that the stars moved in a clockwise manner designed by God, and then Newton came along and had a different school of thought and said, no, no, it's due to gravity, due to attraction, and then another school of thought comes along saying, no, no, it's due to depressions in time-space continuum. People could provide evidence and argue for or against these things. It's unscientific to close down somebody from coming up with alternative convincing evidence. Even at the best end of science, no evidence collection method is absolute and not open to debate or discussion. The gold standard in medicine is randomized trials. Now we use this to decide important medical procedures, which are acceptable and which aren't, on which people's lives depend. So you're required to form a trial of a new medicine. A very large number of people try it, a very large number of people don't try it, and you see whether there is a statistical difference between the two. Now, 
this isn't perfect because when you randomly collect people together, there might be some unfortunate uh, you know, bias in the data, uh, meaning you might have more people of a particular genetic background, more men, more women, or older or younger, especially when you're trying to collect people together to do these trials. Do those who volunteer to be in the trials differ from those that don't? It's not an absolute method. And if you move on to other things like surveys we used in the social science, they've become close to being useless, I think. So presenting, oh, we did a survey and found this, in my case, is not very convincing evidence. Significant tested, testing has been severely criticised. Deirdre McCluskey does a good job of this, pointing out that although two things are correlated, of course that, that's not causation, but it might be that you haven't found the most important thing that is correlated with something else. You, one cause is not the most important cause. Also, a lot of research gets published that simply says that there's a probability that these two are correlated. But these pieces of research should be repeated many times to see whether the probability remains stable. If you say you measured this and, uh, and we found this and we, and we counted this and we found this, that could be useful, but you'd want to know who counted it and how the counting was done. Most of the bias in science comes from choosing what evidence to collect in the first place. Let's take the controversial issue of gender pay gap. Whether it exists or not, you have to notice that people are focusing on gender pay gap rather than, say, the life expectancy gap between genders or the race pay gap or the age pay gap or the experience pay gap or the hard work gap or the killed in warfare gap. The very fact that you're choosing gender pay gap is a bias, is a political move. Again, opening up this question of whether there is any evidence that's absolute and cannot be questioned, of course, at the beginning of the 20th century, people thought that that was true of mathematics. And so Bertrand Russell did a lot of work trying to demonstrate that maths was the cornerstone, the bedrock on which all knowledge should be built. And of course, it didn't take him long to realise that that wasn't the case. Well, actually, it took him a hell of a lot of writing and work, but he, he ended up by pointing out that you, there was a lot of intuitive jumps in mathematics, in proofs that you did when you, you were at school in trigonometry. These have intuitive jumps in them. They're not perfectly pure logical steps all the way. So he sort of proved that maths was not the bedrock of all knowledge. And as I said, empirics is not the bedrock of all knowledge either, because if you see something, it's very easy for your eyes and ears and nose and skin to be deceived. So empirics aren't infallible. By empirics, I mean through the senses, observation and so on. And that includes feelings. Our feelings can be very confused depending on past experiences and very difficult to explain to other people. There appears to be no definitive 
basis of knowledge to say this is an indisputable fact. Therefore, we're left with this arguing with a knowledgeable, sceptical audience in an open and transparent way. I suppose that's the same as saying you can never absolutely prove something to be 100% correct because you've always got to allow for somebody to come along and present some fresh evidence. Now, in the management field, we have a, a, a sort of complication. One is often you cannot go off and perform chemistry-like laboratory experiments on things. Even large randomized trials, which is used in medicine as a bit of a gold standard, it's very hard to do these things. They, they take time and money and effort. And when you're in the social world rather than the physical world, it's a lot more difficult to run these sort of definitive scientific experiments or, or tests and trials. And if you run an experiment, really what you've done is change the experiences of those doing the experiment. If you repeat an experiment, even when you're at school and you did Boyle's Law or something, it's, it's an observation of what happens and therefore your experience has been impacted. So experiments and experience are very similar things. Okay, so what often happens in a real-world commercial situation is you're trying to make a decision about something and you go to an experienced person and say, what do you think? It would be silly to ignore the advice of people who have a lot of experience of something. And yet you might stand there and say, well, that's not really scientific information. It's a, it's a personal experience. But it's, to some extent, convincing at some level, maybe lower level than a pure laboratory experiment. But it, if someone says, look, I've been doing this 25 years, I've got, you know, I have 300 experiences of this happening, and this is what happens if you do this, you'd, you'd really sort of be required to take that experience into account. Of course, if somebody then said, look, that's just a perception. If you run this test, it's not true. You'd have to take that evidence into account. But often in the world, we rely on people recounting their personal experiences as a sort of weak form of evidence. It's a time-cost trade-off. But you can see we're now off on a, a slippery slope that do therefore say that stories and anecdotes are evidence. You might say, well, in, in the absence of anything else, we have to accept them as evidence. We respect experience. So enter now the issue of perspectives or conceptions or alternative points of view. So if you ask somebody to recall an experience and then say, I want you to do it from the point of view of you being a victim, or I want you to do it from the point of view of being a manager, or the, you from the point of view of being a customer, they would tell a different story. The perspective that is chosen to tell the story changes the story, thus making anecdotal evidence a little bit dangerous because you've got to ask people to tell the story from an explicit conception or through a specific lens. So if you're asking somebody to recount their experiences of a particular project manager, 
You say, from the point of view of an accountant, are they a good project manager? From the point of view of people working for him, is he a good project management? From the point of view of the shareholders funding the project, is he a good project manager? From the point of view of environmental protection, is he a good manager? The perspective alters the anecdote. Not only is there multiple perspectives on something, but you need to keep open the idea that somebody's experiences could be just plain wrong. I mean, if a person says, well, in my experience that the moon is made of cheese, you've got to be able to say, that's nonsense. Some stories, some recounted experiences are just plain wrong. They might be an out-and-out lie or deception, or they might be that somewhere somebody's become confused. They've either dreamt it and they're now remembering it as fact, or they've crossed over two facts, got two things mixed up somewhere in their memory. We know that people's memory is very unreliable. In fact, with eyewitnesses in court, we know that they can, they can be very unreliable. I think films and television are a very classic example of how our senses can be deceived. Obviously, this isn't real, but it appears to be real on your television. There's an increasing number of experiments about that, that seeing is not believing. There's a very good documentary called Seeing is Believing, as a question mark. And there's a lot of evidence that our senses can easily be deceived. And as a result, we come to strange conclusions. The scientific method and the presenting of evidence cannot be a wholly, I believe this to be true, this is my experience, it's a fact, take it or leave it, isn't a valid way of collecting evidence. If you use that basis, you will not advance science and society and, and wealth and health and everything else because it's an unreliable method. The, the Enlightenment or the scientific method requires that you convince a sceptical audience of your evidence. Objectivity and bias are determined by a sceptical audience in a process of negotiation and argument. Reasoning is the core of it all. Reasoning or logic supported by evidence that's convincing is the scientific method. And this method, which you might think of as Western, or the scientific method, or the modern method, has been very, very successful. It has got us to the moon, it's got us wealthy, it has you know, reduced child mortality from something like 50% to sort of 5%. People live longer. They're living in a lot better conditions, and a lot of it is simply because of this scientific, community-based, convincing argument logic system based on evidence, on counting, and on reasoning. And this is why people are very concerned about the free speech debate or discussions that go on in the media. If people aren't allowed to bring alternative, convincing evidence, if they're not allowed to reason and debate openly and clearly 
without being accused of being offensive, then you're closing down the Western scientific method, the one that's been so successful. And saying things like, well, God says, or it's written in the Bible, is less convincing to some people. But not allowing people to say the Bible is wrong or or God doesn't exist, uh, because that's offensive, is closing down the scientific debate. This was well put recently by Jordan Peterson when asked whether his comments on transgender people had the right to offend other people. And of course his answer is that you're you're using the concept of science against the concept of offence. So by saying you can't offend people by saying things is you're not allowing science to function. Science requires that everybody in a community has the right to present conflicting evidence alternative evidence and one of the things that happened in Nazi Germany and in Stalin's Russia was that was not the case people could not bring evidence that was not wanted by the power authority and therefore you've closed down western science which is also about how you run a society how you run the courts as much as it is about how you invent new medical aids. Anything that doesn't allow people to express their evidence, or to argue for their evidence, is anti the scientific method. You want to turn that up the other way, is that if you have a group of people in an organization making a decision, they should be open about sourcing ideas to assist in making that decision. Because knowledge, the Enlightenment, is a community of arguing sceptics. The postmodern movement, which many would say has come out of Marxism originally, then critical social theory, is very concerned with power and power groups and how power groups close down debate. But of course, originally the objection, which, if you like, was epitomized by the Second World War, was that powerful groups don't allow other people to have a say, and therefore it's not an open society, it's not the scientific method, and that's a bad thing. However, it would be dangerous then to take that further and say, Anybody in a position of power is automatically oppressing other opinions and, and therefore should be closed down. That the, if you like, the oppressed should not listen to the oppressor. Objecting to the powerful, the oppressor, not listening to the oppressed, should not, I don't think, perversely be switched around to say that the oppressed should not listen to the oppressor. Rather, everybody should listen to everybody. There should be an open public debate where evidence can be presented 
on both sides. Of course it's agreed that if both sides present their evidence, but there is a power group that decides in the end which evidence to take and which evidence not to take, then the power group will filter evidence as it suits them. But the only counter to a power group is to allow open and public debate with the presentation of scientific evidence. That can be ignored or abused, but once it's out there, surely it's got more power than just totally saying there is a whole bunch of people who are not allowed to present evidence. As the saying goes, if you want to kill a monster, don't become a monster. This is where so-called identity politics come in where people say you can't speak for people of a different identity so whites can't speak for blacks or men can't speak for women or Christians can't speak for Muslims this of course is a device for closing people down for shutting people up but the counter apart from its again against the enlightenment method, against the scientific method, to bar people from presenting evidence, is that surely there must be some universal truths out there, regardless of your colour, race or um, gender. So harming children is a bad thing. It doesn't really matter whether white people think it or black people think it. It's a universal truth. And Science likes looking for universal truths, as in you know, gravity as a university, universal concept throughout the universe. It, science looks for things that are true regardless of where you are or when you are, rather than localised truths. This ethnic group believe that it is all right to kill teenage girls who have dishonoured their family and then not allow people from other cultures to comment on that. You've, you've blocked, first of all, you've blocked people presenting alternate evidence, and secondly, you've blocked the possibility of a universal truth of how we should treat children, regardless of colour and gender. Anything that blocks anyone from being able to present evidence is against the scientific method. And saying that the scientific method itself is some male or Western construct is possibly true. But the, the real question is, is it effective? Does it work? And if you look at you know, the growth of science and wealth and, as I say, the, the lack of death amongst children and the quality of life of Westerners, this scientific method seems to work. It's hard to find an alternative one. It, it needs fine-tuning, and that's fine, but to tear it down in a revolutionary way without having some alternative would be the sort of mistake that, that happens in a lot of revolutions. We prefer evolution to revolution, unless there's a... Well, there never is a, a strong alternative in place. Better to evolve. It's way too easy to destroy things You've got to ask yourself, what's the reality of building something else? The Western scientific method has proved itself, coupled with democracy and, and all the things that Neil Ferguson talks about for progress. It has worked. 
not perfectly, but it has worked better than anything else. Better than communism, better than Nazism, better than dictatorships, better than religion. It has been the best system. That's the reason I'm supporting it here. The Enlightenment method, the scientific method of evidence-based argumentation to a knowledgeable, sceptical audience is about the only system available to stop oppression. Perhaps the other practical alternative to saying there should be free and open debates is to talk about limited tenure. That is, if somebody has to make a decision at the end of the day based on the evidence, and that makes them a powerful group that can ignore what evidence they want to ignore, then it's very important there be a rotation of the leadership. In democracies, of course, this is done by having a, an election every four years and people deciding whether the powerful have abused their position or not. One of the big tells of whether you have a democracy or not is whether you can get rid of the leadership or change the leadership on a regular basis. This sort of suggests that something like the Russians with Putin don't really have a democracy. They might vote, but they don't seem to be able to get rid of Putin. Or rather, he uses his power to make sure that there's not a way of getting rid of him. Even if you're in a sports club or organisation, people at the top should be rotated. If you take organisations like the Olympic Committee or the Football Committee, FIFA, if you put somebody in charge forever, you've got to expect corruption and uh, the abuse of power. Not always, of course, but in most cases. So the process of rotating leaders and having a system of rotating leaders if they appear to be abusing their power, in the opinion of most, uh, is a very important part of an open scientific community. It used to be in universities and research establishments that the leadership was appointed out of the general professional staff, and they did it for a, a limited period of time, and then they went back. Uh, typically, vice-chancellors were appointed out of the professor pool, and they did it for a number of years and was a, were expected to rotate back into being a professor again and somebody else would, would take over. And I think it's very important in scientific communities because you are rotating the leadership. Once you appoint people to be the boss for life, you change the, the whole power relationship and the opportunity for alternative selection of evidence. So this comes up with the issue of whether one should have a female president or a black president or a Jewish president or some such, or a Muslim president, be it a president or a Lord Mayor. It is most likely useful to rotate through these groups, these professed, oppressed groups, to give them an opportunity at being the one that decipher the evidence, but it's important that when they're in a leadership role, that they do go through a public argumentative process. You see this happening 
in sometimes with elections where for a number of years you have a right-wing government elected in and then people get a bit tired of it and they put in a left-wing government for a while and get tired of them and they put in a right-wing. The, the very fact that it can swing is most likely an important part of the process. So when running an organisation or your family or yourself, you should say to yourself, or say to everybody really, I believe this to be true. Does anybody have any evidence or counter-evidence to this? Can you falsify this for me? And that needs to be presented to a knowledgeable, sceptical audience so they can provide any falsifying evidence they're aware of. And the whole system of discussion should be an open one, a transparent one. Let me now talk about systems thinking and how it fits into this whole epistemological theory of evidence, theory of knowledge debate. Notice that we're talking to some extent with systems thinking of bringing alternative perspectives and letting them interact. So it's the same general point, just maybe at a more micro level. So when we have a problem, we say, first, decide what concepts you're going to use to think about this problem. Are you going to use concepts like justice, cost, time, complexity, or efficiency to think about this problem? These will go into a sort of dialectic debate with each other, a tension to try and synthesize a creative solution. You can see the analogy with the argumentative method of science. Now, I would argue that's not postmodernism, that's not relativism, that's not uh, anything goes, everybody's entitled to opinion without providing convincing evidence. Rather, it is set up a sort of micro debate before you take it out to the general public for a macro debate. I think what systems thinking adds to scientific thinking is saying be aware of the concepts in use when you're making your measurements or presenting your evidence. You might go back to the word school of thought in astronomy. Be aware of which school of thought you're coming from. Now to some people that's unavoidable because there are whole universities or whole departments dedicated to one particular school of thought. But even then, there are particular underlying assumptions that need to be exposed and explained to everybody. The concepts in use. Rather than say, I'm right and you're wrong, you want to debate the two schools of thought against each other. Nobody being excluded. This also means you do have to give people plenty of opportunity in a non-combative way to present their evidence, their arguments, their reasoning, and then get other people to present theirs and then have a debate about their relative strengths. So this is almost like a court case, isn't it? Issues of whether others find what is said offensive or incorrect are irrelevant. With systems thinking, when we say, let's use a handful of concepts, there's a sort of court case 
with these being alternative defendants in the case. When C. West Churchman, a seminal philosopher in systems thinking, who's indirectly a student of William James through Singer, when he talked about systems thinking, he wanted a system made up of the various scientific methods. So he would say, what would a mathematician say? What would a logician say? What would an empiricist say? What would a rationalist say? And then maybe what would an ethical expert say? He wanted to use the alternative conceptions of science to debate any new ideas or problems. In this series of podcasts, I've sort of done the same thing. I've just extended them to include things like consequences, evolution, paradox, and imitation, all of which I think are really an extended version of the tools for thinking that have been developed over the last 2,000 years, scientific thinking. For example, paradox, as in the I am a liar statement or paradox in logic, because that raises the question of whether I'm lying when I say that or not, that paradox exposed a fundamental flaw in maths as the foundation of all human knowledge. Okay, I might end here. This is a very large topic. But I think anybody interested in problem-solving or decision-making or negotiation has to ask themselves what counts as useful evidence and needs to be very careful not to exclude any evidence or people trying to present evidence. Indeed, it should perhaps include a system of encouraging people to provide alternative evidence. So, the assignment would be, who is being excluded from providing evidence when you make decisions, either about your organization or yourself? Is there free, open, transparent debate with a knowledgeable, skeptical audience? Thank you.